the guest this week is the longest tenured voice of the Oklahoma State Cowboys on radio, Dave Hunziger, who took over after the passing of the voice of the Oklahoma State Cowboys, Bill Teagans. We get into broadcasting, his background, and do's and don'ts as he's climbed the ladder to be the current voice and the longest tenured voice of the Oklahoma State Cowboys. If you like this episode, please rate, subscribe, and review the Blind Broadcaster Pod on Apple Podcasts, iHeartMedia, and your favorite podcasting platform and directory. If you have suggestions for guests you'd like to have on the pod, by all means, please email me at luther.king.tsb at gmail.com You can find me on Twitter at king underscore tsb and if you'd like to try to find me on Facebook please use the email address that I mentioned at the top of the intro. Enjoy the episode with the voice of the Cowboys Dave Hunziger here on the Blind Broadcaster Podcast. This is a Belief Podcast Network production. Interview 28, blessed and thankful and honored to talk to the guy who was the longest tenured voice of the Cowboys on radio, which is hard to believe, because I thought that honor would go to the late Bill Teagans, but no, it doesn't. It goes to the guy that's on my interview today. He is Dave Hunziger. And Dave, for you, when did you know broadcasting was for you and did you play any sports or was that something that you just wanted to cover sports I love to play sports the issue was I wasn't very good <laughs> I wanted to be good and I was and I, and I didn't have a lot of confidence growing up in, in sports I think if I'd have been a little more confident I might have been a little bit better I'm not sure how much better so I always had an interest and Quickly, I realized that I wanted to be around it in one way, shape, or form. Broadcasting was the main thing because I liked to perform. I liked, and I was fascinated by not just the games, but just the business of broadcasting. Mm -hmm. And so when you combine those things, it was pretty easy. By the time I was probably 12 or 13, I knew what I wanted to do. I lost my dad to cancer when I was 12 mm. and that experience of his illness. And the only thing that seemed normal while he was sick over those three months was watching and listening to games. And at that point in time, that cemented it, that that's what I wanted to do, that maybe I could do that for somebody who needed something a little bit uplifting or a distraction or whatever, because it was about the only distraction that seemed to mean anything at all at that time. So that, Probably by 12 or 13, I knew. I darn sure knew I wasn't good enough to play anything. So that that went away quick. So what about the business side of it? Besides take, taking away the fancy, shining equipment, the headset mics, the crowd noise, and everything else that you lug around in a broadcast pack or in a, or in a uh, broadcast case or whatever you wish to call it. Mm-hmm. What about the business side of it interested you before you even put your headset mic on? 
I was always interested. That's a great question. And I've never been asked that before. So I'm glad you did. I'm always interested in what entertains people. Sure. What really brings them enjoyment? What captures and keeps their attention? <coughs> why? You know, why are, and, and I'm not really on the business side, I guess now I'm more on the performance side, but, sure. but it's not really technical. What made, for example, Chris Schenkel so great? Because mm -hmm. I'm a bowler. That's probably my best sport. Then you have probably seen good. then you have probably seen on the Pro Bowlers Association tour Pete Weber. What and of course. You probably asked the question when you watch him bowl. Why is he so good at his craft? Of course. You know, what made Chris Schenkel so good? And and there's a simplicity to it mm -hmm. that it's not over the top. You don't get in the way of the game. You let people enjoy the game and you interject is necessary and then you make your analyst in his case on the old abc professional bowlers tour make nelson burton out to be the greatest thing that's ever been created which is exactly what you should do as a television play-by-play -play guy and even beyond that it was even i i would write in a notebook and i am not joking i would write down in a notebook my programming schedule if I had a make-believe TV station in St. Louis and the shows I would show at a certain time. I don't know why in the world I did that, but it was something I enjoyed. I was, so I've always been fascinated by the, just the programming side. You know, why do you put certain things on the air? Why do you put them on the air at certain times? You know, how do you do weather coverage? All that stuff. I, I find it very fascinating. I've had the privilege to build a network, well, a network from scratch at Western Kentucky. When I was there, I was involved heavily in, in continuing to add to the network at Radford and really creating from scratch television broadcasts that we put on regional cable on what was the old Fox Sports regional networks, uh, Sports South and Home Team Sports. So mm -hmm. those things have always fascinated me. It, it's it's not just the game, the equipment, it's all the stuff that goes into the decision-making and even the sales part, you know, what drives a client to buy sports and how do you get them there? All of that, I've been fortunate to have experience in, in it and I'm very fascinated by all of it. So were there any opportunities at the high school you went to to cover games or broadcast games or when did you finally get the chance to take what you learned to put it to use. You bet. I was incredibly fortunate. Times were a lot different then because I'm old. I'm, <laughs> I, I graduated high school in 1984. The best thing about the pandemic is my hair has had a renaissance. I don't feel like I'm going bald quite at the rate I was before, which is, which is quite an ego boost, a little bonus here in this stressful time. <laughs> but at any rate, we had a local radio station it was 24 miles down the road in the next town over. I grew up in Northeast Missouri. And basically, as is the case in many Midwestern states, you have a county seat that sort of sits somewhere to, to a large extent in the center of the county. And that's usually the largest town in the county. And in Northeast <coughs> Missouri, all of those communities were about 2,000 people, anywhere from 1,500 to 2,400 people in these little county seats throughout Northeast Missouri. Mm -hmm. I was in Cahoka. And the radio station was in Memphis, and we had a family friend 
who worked at the radio station there and knew of my interest in broadcasting. And I'd done some PA work as a, gosh, I think when I was 11, I did PA at a softball game. I had no oh, idea man. what I was I, doing. Oh, three years so of public address. Oh, man. Pardon? I know, I know what you're talking about. Three years of public address, man. Yeah. Anything <laughs> to get behind the mic is wonderful experience. But at any rate, uh, this gentleman, Rick Fisher, they needed some help on a high school broadcast and I was shooting video for the football team, and I asked if a buddy could cover for me, and I went over and helped those guys, and then they eventually said, and this was my senior year in high school, which would have been the fall of 1983, and then they said, well, could you call in reports for the basketball games the morning after, and I said, of course, and after I did about three of those, they said, we need somebody to work our Sunday night oldies show. Would you be willing to do it? And I said, well, I don't know a lot about oldies. I could learn. They said, you know what? Just play the music, do the weather, do the news. We think you'll be fine. And we'll have you help us on the high school broadcast. And my mom said, even though I would get home at midnight on Sunday night and go to high school the next morning, I say, get home at midnight, get off the air at midnight, get home about one by the time I finished all the shut down the station work because we went off the air at midnight and powered mm -hmm. down. By the time I finished everything and got home back to Cahokia, it was one o'clock in the morning. My mom said, I totally trust you. You've made all straight A's. You'll be fine. You can take the job. And so that got me started. And so I was DJing oldies music and doing a few high school games only as an analyst for that first year. And then that eventually grew into doing news during the summertime. And, and, and as a result, every semester break from the University of Missouri until the summer of my junior year when I stayed in Columbia, I went back and worked full time at the radio station in Memphis doing news, doing sports. DJing shifts, covering for people on vacation, and absolutely loved it. I loved all of it, not just the sports. I loved all of it. I loved reading the farm markets. I, I embraced it all. So, how did you fit all of it in while you were trying to get all your high school courses done, even though you know you were on a time crunch? to do the last shift of DJing and all the other things that were left to do, plus close the station down, get home, get about three or four hours of sleep before the alarm clock, and then do the same thing over again. You know, thankfully, it was only the Sunday night once a week, and I might have a high school basketball game. Usually would not have more than one per week, and, and a lot of times might be one every two weeks. They knew I was trying to finish high school, so they were very cognizant of that. They also knew how badly I wanted to do it. So there was that balance, but it sort of shows, I guess, if you want to do something badly enough, it doesn't really even phase you. Honestly, I don't even remember being tired. Of course, when you're young, you don't really get tired anyway. I mean, you sleep till noon when you're not working. So <laughs> I, I, I wasn't much for doing that, but you, you find your ways to get sleep. It, it never really bothered me. I do remember vividly, the first game I did on the radio as an analyst, we were going to Unionville, Missouri to do a semifinal girls game in the Putnam County Tournament mm. and taking my note cards and studying for a trigonometry test in the car on that 70-mile ride. Now, that I remember vividly, and I, the test went fine, but I've always been, I've been fortunate. My dad worked in a job before he passed away young where he did multiple things at once, and it never phased him. And I think I was very blessed to receive that same ability, the ability to juggle lots of things and just sort of let it roll and not get too rattled about it, almost kind of like enjoy it in a way. So it, it, 
it never really bothered me all that much. I, I don't remember ever being exhausted. I think I was just so fired up about having the opportunity that I didn't want anybody to even know I was tired, even if I was. So when you finally finish up high school and finally take your steps into the world after getting your diploma, you went to college at Western Kentucky or, or excuse me, no, Missouri, sorry. Missouri, yeah. My bad. What all did you learn at Mizzou broadcast-wise, and how much do you still use to this very day, almost 25 years as a leader? Well, 35 almost. Well, I'm biased, but I think you'd be hard-pressed to find a better place to go to school to be a broadcast journalist. And I know Syracuse and other places would say that they offer more sports experience, and that may be true, but really a lot of what we do still comes down to news judgment and it comes down to putting things in the proper context, which is all about news judgment. I still use all of that today. I mean, we certainly were trained in performance. I can remember getting a phone call after doing one of my first morning edition shows as a junior at Missouri <laughs> and, and you got coached hard at Mizzou and, uh, I'll never forget the instructor called and said, get Hunziker on the phone. I go over and it's like, oh, I'll bet she has something good to say. And usually when you get the phone call of getting your last name said first, You're did, it ever, did, it, did it ever feel like you were about to go to the principal's office because you knew you did something wrong? Well, that's exactly what happened. She said, quit yelling at me while I'm trying to eat my breakfast. I said, pardon? You didn't give the news. You yelled the news at me. It's called conversational tone. You need to learn how to do it. She just hung up. Mm-hmm. It's like, okay. Well, that didn't sting a bit. Uh, <laughs> but you know what? Message received. And another thing that happened is I, I used a word out of context in a television script and Oops. got the dictionary thrown in my face at the TV station. That was right in front of everybody. It's like, if you're going to graduate with a degree from this program, you will not embarrass us by not using... Uh, by by using uh, words and out of words context that, 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 that are out of context or with, if you don't have basically the message was if, if you can't communicate in proper English you will embarrass the school that was the message was and like, embarrass okay. yourself don't I mean think about yeah, it yeah of course you're, you know, you're going to institution so, so of higher learning hard, which is what you need and I teach a class here at Oklahoma State and I like to think I sort of do it the same way you've got to do that. You've got to drill into students' heads in this very public line of work that mistakes are costly and where they do the most damage is your credibility. Mm -hmm. If you don't have proper grammar and dictation, communicate in good English, why would anybody even listen to what you're saying? Exactly. You don't, you can't even write sentence pro- sentences properly. So the bazooka, that it, it is stuck. It is absolutely stuck. And, and again, coming down to news judgment, even kind of analyzing the events of today, social media, what it's doing, you know, we won't go into all that, but it, it, you know, how it's changed things. Not We can, better. if you wish. <laughs> no, I mean, it's, it, it's, we could go on forever about that. It's, yeah, we it's, could. In, in freedom yeah. of the press and all of the history behind that as far as our country is concerned. But 
it's oh my gosh, my Mizzou influence is still with me. I'm very proud of that degree. I'm 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 a big believer in how they teach, and I'm a and I'm was very blessed to be able to go there. I was blessed to be a Missouri native, so I could go there inexpensively, and it was a wonderful experience. I I, I learned a ton. I learned good news judgment, and I just learned the importance of you've got to do it all right because if not you're not going to last. So when did you get a chance to actually broadcast at Missouri? I was doing some student radio station work as a freshman, doing a couple of Missouri baseball games with a good friend of mine, Chris Trevino, who was one of my college roommates, one of my best friends in the world. And he's been longtime sideline reporter for Missouri football and analyst for Missouri basketball on the radio and, is been a sports anchor in Columbia forever. He's one of like a brother to me and he's my youngest daughter's godfather, as a matter of fact. And Mm. we did some Mizzou baseball together, which was awesome. Did some other work just at the student station doing news and sports casts and playing around. And then once you get to be a junior at Missouri at that time is when you would get into the on air pieces of the journalism school, starting in radio, doing news, of course, sports at Missouri at that time, you only did sports as a volunteer. There were no classes where sports play-by-play or sports reporting was part of the quote-unquote curriculum. You might be able to get away with a sports story for a class, but it had to have a pretty substantial news angle to it. And I managed to sneak that in a couple of times, as you might imagine. <laughs> but I found some volunteer opportunities while I was in school my freshman, sophomore year, and then your junior year, you're into the journalism school and, and you're going hard. So when you finished at Mizzou, what was your first big break that you finally got the opportunity to actually be the lead broadcaster? And how huge was prep from high school to college? And when you got your first gig as a PXP voice and how did things change in your preparation from then to now? Oh my gosh, things have changed so dramatically. I, when I was working, when I was a senior at Missouri, actually, I beg your pardon, at the end of my junior year, this person I mentioned before, Chris Trevino, was working part-time doing a sports talk and sportscast at the news talk station in Columbia, KFRU. And they needed, and Chris was getting more into the television side. And so he was going to step away from that position to focus more on television. And he knew my interest is more in radio. And so he suggested to his boss, I'm going to focus more on TV, but I have someone that might be good to take my place. So I took that job as a student, end of my junior year, throughout my senior year. And then during that senior year in college, I started doing Columbia Rockridge High School play-by-play football and basketball, which was wonderful. I had a great time. And then eventually, uh, when I, by the time I reached the middle of February of my senior year, KFRU decided, you know what? We think we could use you full-time. So they made me full-time, which was fantastic. So I worked there for three years and did Columbia College play-by-play as well as the Columbia Rockridge play-by-play. But it's funny that you mentioned the preparation, Luther, because to prepare for those games, 
and to really help me create a halftime show where I interviewed, you know, maybe three of the coaches in that high school conference, which was the North Central Missouri Conference that Columbia Rockbridge played in, I would go over in the mornings once or twice a week, and on the University of Missouri campus, there's a building that houses the Missouri State Historical Society. And in that building was a newspaper reading room where you could read all of the newspapers in the state of Missouri. Now, they might be two or three days old, so I would go in there and read the game stories of the teams that Columbia Rock Ridge was playing to do background, not only for the games, but to do backgrounds, background for the interviews for those halftime shows I was creating each game. Because those things were a lot of work, but I enjoyed it. And so that's how I did my prep. I literally went to the newspaper library at the Missouri Historical Society and read the Kirksville Daily Express and the Mexico Ledger to learn more about what those teams were doing. And so I could do a good job on the interview. And it was a great lesson in preparation. I really didn't have anybody tell me to do that. I just felt like it was a good thing to do. So now, you know, even going back to when I first arrived at Oklahoma State, which was 2000, Mm -hmm. the internet to a large extent wasn't necessarily in its infancy, but we weren't nearly as advanced as we are now. At that time, I think newspapers were really just starting to go onto the internet. And most of your preparation, certainly in the 90s when I was at Bradford, was game notes. Uh, You know, you relied on the sports information departments to provide you game notes, and then you had conversations with your play-by-play colleagues at the other schools to try to get some background that was interesting, and and you went with it. Now there's an infinite amount of information out there, and the bigger challenge now is deciding what you use and what you feel like isn't necessary. Now you have so much that some of the stuff you have to decide, you know what, this just – now you have to go back to that news judgment and decide what's the lead. And when I say what's the lead, in our case, what are the four bullet points that need to go on that chart in the box for a particular player, quarterback, running back, wide receiver, point guard, et cetera. In the old days, you were just scrambling to find enough material probably to get by. And everything, you know, a lot of my research then was all statistical driven. That's all you had. Now you can go online and read feature story after feature story, and it's an entirely different thing. It's it's so different than it was in the 90s. We were at Western Kentucky. What did you – what was your role? What all did you do at Western Kentucky? And how much broadcasting were you able to do? I did football and men's basketball, and I arrived in July – of 2000, I guess it would have been July of 2000, and I was, they had started some work. They had a fair amount of work done on starting the new Big Red Radio Network, but I took that over, and I, you know, I had to build everything from scratch. I had to come up with the broadcast format. I had to find satellite time. You know, we worked together to buy the equipment we needed. I was still recruiting affiliates. I, there was sales work that had to be done. I was doing that. So I was doing everything and, and still had the chance to do the games, ended up basically doing the hires for our analysts for football and basketball, interviewing those people with the athletic director and making those decisions, you know, setting up our travel. There was a lot. I loved it. It was incredibly busy because when you're starting a new venture like that, there's just every moment 
you, you finish one task and your light pops off in your brain and says, wait a second, now, I forgot about this. We need to do this too. It just continues, you know, over and over. But it was a great experience. We had really good teams that one year I was at Western. The football team was ranked in the top six in 1AA with Jack Harbaugh as the head coach. Of course, he is the father of the legendary Harbaugh family with Jim at Michigan and John, the head coach of the Baltimore Ravens. And mm-hmm. working with Jack was a wonderful experience. And the men's basketball team won the Sun Belt title with Dennis Felton as head coach, who became a great friend. And it was wonderful to watch that program kind of have a renaissance because they'd fallen upon hard times at Western in the mid to late 90s, really uncharted territory for Western because they'd been so good for so long. They have such devout basketball fans there that, that care deeply about their program. And it was really fun to be there as they made their first NCAA trip. I think it'd been six or seven years since they'd been. So to be there for that and, uh, and watch that take shape and, and see that program take off again, because they only went upward from there. They were ranked in the top 25, I think the next two seasons, as a matter of fact, you know, to be there at that time and, and, and be a part of a great football team. And then really the start of their Renaissance in basketball, that was a lot of fun. Who did you take over for as the voice of Western Kentucky, if I may ask? Wes Strader was the voice. Yeah, I remember. Yeah, he passed away not too long ago, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, they, they, you know, they, they wanted. I, I don't know all the history of it, but they had decided they wanted to go about. So they <clears> took <throat> the network in house, and that's when they brought me in. I think they just decided they wanted to pull everything in house, probably for a, a from a sales perspective kind of the Learfield model we live in today, mm-hmm. you really would prefer to have, if you're an athletic department, one entity sell everything. Mm-hmm. And I think that's probably what drove it. They wanted it all in, in-house and they had everything except the radio broadcast. So they pulled it in. At this point, I don't know if you had a significant other at that point or if it was just one of those where it was like, okay, I can I can do this for as long as I can. This is a pretty good lucrative life at Western Kentucky. Or were you thinking I need to find better opportunities? I think I was open-minded to just about anything. I was certainly fine there. I had this great, you know, it was a great setup. But at the same time, I, <coughs> I knew I was hoping to get to a power five school. Of course, we didn't even use use the term power five at that time. Right. But honestly, I thought the opportunity was more likely to be in the ACC because I'd spent the eight years in Radford. Most of my contacts had sort of shifted from middle America, from my time at Missouri to the East coast. Those were pretty much where all my contacts in my network were located was on the East coast. I never would have imagined while I was at Radford during that year at Western Kentucky that I'd end up back in the old Big 8 slash Big 12 in which I grew up. I That didn't even cross my mind. It, it I never, after the mid-90s and, you know, things were going well at Radford and we kind of got established and really enjoyed the East Coast, I didn't think I was ever going back. I I, I would have never thought I would end up in the Big 12. Ever. I just didn't see how it would be possible. 
Well, let's backtrack a little bit. Did he think about it? And yeah. If, if my math is right, and if my memory of the voice of either Save the Dance or maybe it was the voice behind the voice, one of those podcasts you were on, that West Durham, I think, helped you get the Radford gig. He did. He did. He absolutely did. He had been there. He had been there, I guess, three years. And then Hank Dickinson came in, who's now at North Texas, who's a great friend. And he's working was with Dave Barnett. Beg your pardon? And Hank and um, Hank Dickinson is color analyst for basketball with Dave Barnett. Yeah. Yeah. Hank's awesome. He's a great broadcaster. He's a good play by play guy. Now he's more of an administrator. He's the number two AD at North Texas, has been for several years. Oh, wow. Now working under Ren Baker, an Oklahoma State guy. And so, yeah, West really helped me. We connected when I was in Columbia, kind of looking for jobs. And he he helped me tremendously. He, he, he got my name in the mix there. He's been a great friend all these years. He's always been very helpful. And yeah, he sort of he's he got me in the door at Radford without a doubt. He played a huge role in getting me that job. But once I again, once I got to the East Coast and kind of knowing what my network was, I just never imagined. I never imagined that I would be, you know, going back to the Big Twelve. I just I would have, you know, it's not that I didn't want to, because that's home. That's my roots. I grew up a Missouri fan. I you know I. I always hoped I would, you know, work in the Big Eight and later the Big Twelve. But to be honest, I just didn't think it was practical. So you know, you just say, "Well, that's just not going to happen," and that's fine. So how tough was it from Western Kentucky to Radford to Oklahoma State, trying to either have a social life with dating or dealing with? You know, having a significant other, dealing with a young family, trying to raise them, and then trying to decide how you're going to, you know, what's the best opportunity that's going to be a right fit for you plus them. I was lucky in that my wife, who I married after my first season at Radford, we were married in August of 93, and I went to Radford November of 92. Oh, wow. She did not have an issue with moving around, which, given how close she is to her family, is pretty amazing, really, because she is, <laughs> you know, be close with her parents in particular. Mm-hmm. And, but she, and she was fine with it. It's like, what a great way to start a marriage. We'd go off on our own. We'll do our own thing. You know, we'll have to rely on each other. And she was up for it. And she didn't mind the move to Kentucky. When we came to Oklahoma, you know, we had moved twice in 53 weeks from Radford to Western Kentucky and then from Western Kentucky to Oklahoma State because we were only in Bowling Green 53 weeks. Oh, wow. Yeah, it was quick. Talk, talk about talk about learning the art of making sure that you're packing correctly to move. Oh, yeah. And at that time, our children, let's see, uh, our, our oldest when we made the first, so they would have been three and seven months when we moved the first time, and obviously four and 19 months when we moved the second time. That's not the ideal time to be moving, but it's better than taking them out of the school. And so when we came to Oklahoma State, my wife said, you know, this is fine, but no more moving for a while. And I said, honey, if this goes the way it's supposed to, I don't know if we'll ever move again. Probably not. 
She's like, okay. We came out here sight unseen. We have never. I had been here once to cover a game in 1988. The interview was on the phone. We didn't come out and look. We just said, let's go. She said, you've always wanted to work in the Big 8, now the Big 12. You know what? Let's just go. How bad can it be? I mean, we've heard great things about it. So she, so she, oh, so she allowed. Plus, we're going to be closer to family. Well, yeah. I mean, she was cool with it. I mean, she could have fought it. She didn't fight Mm -hmm. it at all. And she's a nurse, and so that was a huge thing on two fronts. Number one, in her profession, even with an advanced practice, uh, with master's degree that she has, Mm -hmm. there's a lot of flexibility. You know, she can get a job about anywhere. Right. And then the second part of it was she didn't, you know, she was someone who could work independently in terms of if I'm on the road taking care of the kids, uh, which was hard for her because she was working too, Mm -hmm. but she wasn't one who felt like I had to be around all the time. I mean, in terms of, you know, wasn't, I guess my point is, was not high maintenance at all. Mm -hmm. I tell the students out in my class at the end of the class, I said, look, if you're going to work in this business, and you have aspirations of being, you know, a husband and a father, you better marry the right person. And whoever that person is, it better be really independent and really tough because if they're high maintenance, it is not going to work. If you're going to be gone, you're going to be busy. You're trying to get, trying to get many different directions. You got to marry the right person. That's critically important. Yeah. You got to get prep done. I mean, you know, it, it really never stops. So I found the right person. I mean, for bigger reasons than this, obviously, but well, even as it dovetails into career, I mean, she was very supportive. She's very independent. She's tough. You got to have that. So how did you get her to help you on stats? Cause I know you probably have your, they, they have a stat crew, but. You how... know, my wife, we've always kept our distance. You know, she, this is no joke. She's never been in a football booth here. Now, really? Nope. Nope. Wow. She's got, she's got her, you know, when the weekend comes, she's in nursing management. So she has, she has a real job with real stress. <laughs> of course. I mean, she, you know, with the, the, the coronavirus, she managed, she's the director of the ICU here in Stillwater. And thankfully, knock on wood, we've not had a ton of cases, but, you know, she was right in the middle of writing all the protocols, procedures, putting all the planning, reporting equipment to the governor on a daily basis. That's her world. So she lives in the real world. I live in fairy world, you know, in, in, in stats and games and stuff like that. But there's always, you know, she said, I had no interest. I said, honey, I'm totally cool with that. I mean, you're always welcome to come. Yeah, she always. sits at home and listens to the game on the radio and watches on TV and does her own thing, which and, and relaxes and enjoys the chance to kind of throttle down. Mm-hmm. She's not one that loves crowds. And so now, conversely, my two daughters have both worked for me. Uh, both have worked as my producer engineer for basketball. They both got to be pretty darn good at it. My oldest loves Wait, wait, one. wait, wait. Hold on. Yeah. How in the world did your daughters – work with you on sporting events oh because most because mo- most kids don't even want to follow in their in their dad's footsteps or their parents footsteps and what they're doing they want to try to create their own path well it's interesting my oldest always had a huge interest in sports she loves it she still does 
she's studying to be an occupational therapist. She's in grad school. I mean, she, How about that? she understands that it's not something she wants to do for a living, but she still enjoys it. Sure. She, she made her first trip to the booth when she was eight years old <laughs> and she was so well behaved. That was the key. She was so low maintenance and so well behaved that no one cared. She was up there. They kind of liked having her around. I mean, it's hard to believe. I mean, she just was so good about it. And so she was around it and she mm -hmm. paid attention. So we ended up kind of getting into situations where I started producing my own basketball games. I said, you want to learn how to do that? She's like, dad, I think I already know. I said, well, you know what? Let's do some practice runs. Let's see. And her main job was to run the effects mic. Right. She was awesome at it. She knew exactly how to pot it down. She knew exactly what I was looking for. If I needed a piece of equipment, she probably knew where it was, and she most likely knew what it was. I was like, honey, I need this. And a lot of times, be for the visiting team, I'd have something break. It's like, can you go grab one of these? Like, yeah, I know where it's at. I'll go get it. She'd always check on the visiting broadcast team, especially if they didn't have an engineer. She'd go get drinks and snacks for them at half. And uh, she got to know all the broadcast teams. And she loved it. And they enjoyed her. And she got a graduation gift from David Lawrence at Kansas. Uh, you know, and they always ask about her. And my youngest helped out her last two years of high school. She was not so much the sports fan, but she's a performer. So the audio part of it, the show part of it appealed to her. Mm -hmm. She liked mixing the audio and she edited segments for me. All our officiating segments for the football pregame. I said, Grace, honey, I'll pay you if you want to do these because I'm tired of editing them. She's like, oh, I'm getting them edited for you. And she popped up my Adobe edition and I went and played golf. When I got home from the golf course, it's like, Dad, all 12 of your segments are in the file, ready to go. It's like, sweet. It's like, life's good. <laughs> I paid her money, and she's like, cool, that's a deal. It's like, well, that was a great, that was time well spent on both of our sides. Yeah, life's good. But, yeah, Especially. so they were both really interested in, in uh, again, my oldest is was very much into the sports part of it and loved she would go to practice with me sometimes and coach Gundy, he liked it. He didn't care. He, he liked having her around and she knew that what happened at practice stayed at practice. She never once violated that ever. You know, where she would say something out of line because she'd see game plans going to place and we'd be riding to the stadium before a game. And she's like, you know, we're going we're to throw the ball a lot today. You know, or she might make a comment, you know, that was, we put some different plays in, uh, she knew and so it was fun and my wife just kind of supported all that and she you know she stayed back and kind of enjoyed the chill time to herself and and uh never bothered her a bit so what's your typical game week like dealing with football men's basketball and other sports when you get a chance to do them either as a pa guy or maybe on tv and how tough you know, is it to, and how tough is it knowing that you've done radio pretty much the whole year and now you're doing select TV games? How do you keep yourself mentally sharp knowing which entity you're doing, even though you've done TV for what? Right. You know, with football and basketball, I've done radio so long and, you know, football's there, there's work to be done every day, whether it's spotter board work, whether it's reading and research, whether it's watching video, 
attending practice, which I do usually twice a week in football. Tuesday, Wednesday, the big days is when I go. Later in the week, it's getting the two-hour pregame show put together. It's editing the segments. It's creating a rundown for the show so that everybody knows exactly when certain things are going to happen. Fridays are usually a slow day for me. I actually take Friday as kind of a letdown before the storm. Sometimes I'll have a little bit of work to do on Fridays, but I try to keep at least most of Friday, if not all of it, pretty clear. Might slip out. Usually I'll slip out to the golf course, just take my mind off, review things Saturday morning and go. And of course, we're traveling on Friday in football, then that's a different dynamic because obviously we're, we're traveling. But baseball, which I do home television here at Oklahoma State for baseball, it's just a whole different level of preparation because obviously in television, you're enhancing the pictures. You can't call play by play because people can see it. It would be boring as all get out. Whereas radio, most of the script is written by what you're seeing and then relaying that and communicating that to the audience. In television, you have, you're spending the entire broadcast, the entire game enhancing the pictures. So it's an enormous amount of work. I, I love the work, but it's a lot. It's a lot of preparation to do it well, but it's the only way to do it. And the thing is, you do a lot of the preparation, as Vern Lundquist says, you don't know how much of that's going to get on the air, but it's what you do. How big was writing, script planning from college to now? And how helpful or maybe sometimes not helpful are storylines? And do you think sometimes we can have too much information for circuitry overload when there's a lot of things that you don't really need? I and think how do you the, sure I think the big question always is and this is how I think of the open of the broadcast why should people care why should I take time from my day and listen to this broadcast or watch this game what is interesting I have other things I could be doing I have other games I could be watching I have other games I could be listening to why is this game worth my time? That's the first question. You answer that, kind of carry on from there. And as far as the writing elements concerned, you can only do play-by-play, -play, and really I should say it this way, you can only ad-lib as well as you can write because it's writing in your head. So if your writing skills, and I tell the students in classes, if your writing skills are well below average, you have a very low ceiling as someone on the air, especially in play-by-play -play where it's constant ad-libbing because you just don't have many bullets in your gun. So you better figure out how to fix it. And when I say bullets in the gun, the ability to write, how well you ad-lib, how well you can work off the fly is totally based on your command of the language completely based on it and if you're not a very good writer then you're not going to be a very good ad libber you might be able to talk but you're not going to be able to form consistent thoughts and build stories and be a storyteller you may be able to just talk in circles just to fill time but can you can you put things together in a way that has meaning and context that goes 
directly back to your ability to write. They go hand in hand. How do you, if my math is correct, and my memory hopefully is not faulty here, when you say you put you, you record everything in a closet? <laughs> I do. Yeah, <laughs> and I've changed. You're the first person I've talked to since I've changed. I what? Wait a minute. Breaking news? Oh, my. <laughs> yeah, go ahead. Breaking well, news? Wow. I guess in a pandemic, everything's anything of, of, of that matters is breaking. So, what's so I completely cleaned out my office, and now my office closet actually would look like a little studio the way it's kind of set up. So, I've actually switched, and it actually, and, and I've set it up so that it's it really kind of functions like a studio. I've got portable lighting in there, and I've got some things around to kind of help brace the sound, but yeah, it works great. So, now I have how, how long did that process take on moving from the closet where you have all your shirts and suits and pants and all that <laughs> to changing your office closet into kind of a renegade broadcast center, if you will? You know, it's so simple nowadays. You don't have you don't have to have much to create a lot in terms of equipment. To me, if you have a good recorder, whatever that may be, but you need a good mic, that's the key. Mm -hmm. And I invested in a pretty darn good mic that's a condenser mic that has a lot of low end, which I need because my voice is high. And it sounds awesome. I mean, that's the thing is you can record stuff just about anywhere. You have to be observant enough to know when you're <clears> in <throat> situations where it's hollow because in a lot of places, for example, obvious example, a hardwood floor. You're not mm. going to record in a room with a hardwood floor. It's going to rattle and sound like it's just echoing all over the place. Exactly. And it is. But, you know, if you have a place where you just have a little bit of sound buffer, like a closet, if you have a good mic, you don't need much. I mean, that's the world is so changed that way. But the key is the mic. I mean, you need a good mic, and you may have to invest a little money in into that microphone. But nowadays, if you're just smart and look around, you can find a really good mic very intensively. And you know, the thing is, you can hear the difference. I mean, we joke about it in our pregame show. You know what was recorded on the good mic and what somebody else submitted because you can hear the difference, especially in the low end and the richness and fullness of the sound. So if you just have a good mic, some decent recording equipment, and a place that is reasonable, you can do a lot of work and not have to have anything fancy at all. I've done it like that. Oh, gosh, I've done it like this for 11 years, and I've recorded network commercials in that closet, and it's <laughs> never been an issue, never been an issue. How big are numbers that you can use to maximize a point that you're trying to make in a broadcast? And how much are numbers are just useless numbers that you don't need? How do you determine when you're using a particular piece of information, how it's going to enhance something or what pieces that will not be needed, but you still might need them later. Well, it all goes back. You nailed it. It's context. 
if the number provides insight or context, then you use it. Now, it can't be so complicated that people can't understand it. For example, Ken Pomeroy in basketball is a great example. Mm-hmm. Those are wonderful analytics, but you really can't use those in their purest form because people don't understand it. You know, they know that if you're good at offensive efficiency, you're a good offensive team. If you use turnover rate, you need to explain what that is mm-hmm. and what it means. And so those numbers are great, but you have to, number one, make sure people understand what it is you're talking about. And if not, you better explain it. And then two, it's all about context. You know, I used to, I was accused a lot. I accused is a strong word. You know, some people would say, well, you just throw out a lot of stats and I really would get defensive and I still do. I guess they don't say it much to me anymore because I kind of, I don't, I'm not one to be snippy, but I would get snippy over this. It's like, I never use a number that's not put into context ever. I do not throw numbers out just to throw numbers out. I do not do that. And I will not do that. I always put it into context and that's the whole key. You don't throw numbers out. You know, and it's like, uh, I think it was Wayne Larrabee said this, and I've had to teach myself this because I was like, okay, when I read this in Tom Hedrick's book, The Art of Sportscasting, I just raised my hand and said, okay, guilty, put me in handcuffs, I did this. <laughs> he said, don't do, I think it was Wayne Larrabee, I'm, I'm pretty sure it was Wayne Larrabee, don't do the game as if there's going to be an exam on it afterwards. That's like, Oof. oh, wow, that's really good. That's deep. It's good. Yeah, it's, it's deep, true. but it's good because yeah. I think a lot of I think a lot of broadcasters, especially as young ones, we always feel like we have to throw everything out because we feel like we have to take an exam on it. This has nothing to do with tests. Are you good at what you do or you're not? Well, it's credibility, Luther. That's mm. that's what we're all grasping for as young broadcasters and we're trying to we're trying to establish credibility and honestly that's a darn good way to do it i think it certainly helped establish me here that this guy does a lot of preparation but he not only does the preparation and has the numbers he understands what the numbers mean and he explains it to us so we understand it and then the timing of how you use that information is critical and i was always fortunate to kind of have a, a a sense of that so i think for a lot of young announcers it's about credibility and it is a great way to establish credibility you just can't overuse it you have to make sure that that the timing is right not throwing <laughs> numbers out there just to throw numbers out there and that you don't just suffocate the game with a lot of numbers the game needs to breathe the, the whole goal is to feel like you're taking the fans to the game and allowing them to experience the game through the radio, which means there's a lot of times where the best thing we do is shut up. In fact, you know, that may be one of the most important skills a play-by-play guy can have is just the ability to know, hey, time shut up. Vince you know, Scully was probably up. the best. Vince Scully was probably the best at that on the, if you go back on watch YouTube, when he called Hank Aaron's home run for a full 90 seconds. You just let the crowd in the moment do the talking. Oh, my gosh. I was – I don't know what got us into this. We were, well, I'll tell you what it was. We were watching the replay on ESPN of the 2011 World Series Game 6 the other night over dinner. Really? And we're all Cardinal fans, and so that was 
about as good as it gets. Uh, yeah, I, you know what? Count me in that club. Huge card yeah. I was listening to it on Game Day Audio, in fact. Yeah, and so the Cardinals beat the Rangers that night, but then that – and I also used to be – I kind of left the Cardinals for a while and went to the Atlanta Braves. I was one of those kids that grew up watching TBS with not much else to do. So I became a Braves fan, and then we went back and pulled up on YouTube Sean McDonough and uh, Tim McCarver – Game seven of the '92 NLCS. The slid, the Sid Breen slide. The you mean the the one they were popular when they tied the game, and then Sid Breen came around second and came around third. Exactly. With with and a bum with a bum with a bum ankle. Yeah. Oh, and he's just and he had bad knees too, mm-hmm. and he's just slugging around. Him. I think it was Mike Lavalle was the catcher, and he I, he was safe by an inch. But Sean McDonough, after he called that, he laid off forever, and it was great. He didn't mm-hmm. say anything for at least a good two and a half, three months. Oh, it was for a while, and it was great. And whoever was directing was just, as you would expect on a show like that, was crushing it because all it the cutaways were perfect. It was the Braves celebrating, and then you had the shot of Barry Bonds kind of just barely moving. And then one of the great shots of video, and of course, it's, it's you always feel bad it was in a loss, but Andy Van Slyke, I don't know how many people were I think I saw Andy Remember Vance that? sitting in center with his mouth just hanging open, and just completely and not even moving. He's like he was like hit by a stun gun. I mean, because Bray scored three on the ninth. People forget it was two nothing Pittsburgh going to the ninth, and that was just a wonderful sports television moment. I remember something Bern Lundquist said, and when they did the documentary on him, see if I get this quote right. Uh, and I can't remember it precisely, but basically was. Sports television, when done well, is the ultimate collaborative endeavor, and it is. And that's another example of wonderful announcing, wonderful directing, wonderful videography. It was just, it was perfect. I mean, I'm just, you know, I mean, not that I like directed or produced, but just as a viewer and as a broadcaster, it was perfect. It was wonderful. I went back and listened to the Skip Carey call of that ninth inning in its entirety with Skip Carey and Joe Simpson. And I tell you, that was fan- that was some good work because Don Sim- Joe Simpson hardly did not say a word until later. And as one of my other guests on the pod, sure. who was a former and baseball player. everybody has to understand a, who, their roles. Who was a former baseball club by Playboys, who was also a teacher at a college, basically said – Baseball is better called as a one-man play-by-play booth, not two. There's some truth to that. And I'll just go ahead and drop the name. Lenny Fateri, who was on this pod before, basically said it because I asked him, you know, when he was working with all these broadcasters and things like that, he told, he said, baseball is better. It's a two-man booth, but it's better when you work one. I, I, you know, I've not done a lot of baseball radio. I've mainly done TV, but I would agree with that. I mean, you, you know, you think about the legends of baseball as we remember them, as those of us who are older, Jack Buck, Vin Scully, check, check. Uh, you know, and the list goes on and on and on. Hey, I mean, those are two, Carey, Harry Carey, and Harry guys, Carey, the Harry, the Carey family. Like, yeah, but a lot of those guys, when they did innings, they did them by themselves. Mm-hmm. 
you know, and I think of Buck, I mean, Shannon might chime in a little bit, but for the most part, Buck was on his own. Yep. Same was true. And he, um, and Jack Buck learned under Harry Carey because Harry Carey was the lead guy for the Cardinals for a long yeah, those two, time. Those two guys to were college. together, which is mind-boggling. But it's a different it, – baseball is a different animal. I love baseball television. I love the pace of it. I have an incredible analyst. Tom Holliday is the analyst who is – our OSU baseball coach is Josh Holliday. The other brother is a guy named Matt Holliday. Yes, former Cardinal player in field and Rockies. Former Car- former Cardinal and Rocky outfield. Yeah, so you got a lot of baseball. And, of course, Tom Holliday coached at Oklahoma State and Texas, North Carolina State. He knows everything about college baseball and now coaches a team in the Cape Cod League. And so it's – I just kind of pull the string and he talks. Which which just canceled their – which just which canceled their baseball season along with yeah. a few other leagues. And other leagues are still trying to figure out when they're either going to start or how they're going to, you know, be able to even play their season and – with fan safety, with this, with everything going on, they're still trying yeah. to figure those out. Everybody's trying to figure it out, and it changes daily, whether it's college or pro. Speaking of college, I believe I heard you say that your lovely bride basically, from time to time, gives you a hard time about going to the conference of rules officials so you can <laughs> be up to date on the rules that are ever changing in this landscape known as college sports. When and how did you decide if I'm going to be the best that I can be, this is someplace I need to be. Embarrassment is a tremendous motivator. (laughs) In 2009, we played the University of Houston Oklahoma mm-hmm. State had just beaten Georgia, was ranked, I think, number six in the country. Something like that. That's right, week two. And I didn't know that they had changed the man down field rule in college from a yard to three yards. Oops. So I just went berserk because this guy was downfield three yards. Ironically, this tells you about the quality of the man I'm about to speak of. Okay. Ironically, Walt Anderson who was the supervisor of officials for the Big 12 and now involved in uh, in leadership in the NFL officiating ranks and a longtime NFL referee, mm-hmm. was at the Oklahoma State game. And if I remember correctly, was told he was listening to our postgame show afterwards. Uh-oh. Well, you know what was cool about that? Walt made the comment, this is partly on us. We've got to help educate these guys so they know. The next year, like five months later in February, I get word from the conference office as well as our Oklahoma State people that they are now going to open up the Big 12 officiating clinic to all the play-by-play and analysts, whoever wants to come. They're welcome to come. I told my wife that. And she just looked up from getting ready for work and said, well, after that Houston debacle, I suppose you'll be going to that, won't you? It's like, yep, sure will. It's like, it's like you need to, yeah, as you should. It's like, yeah, I'll be going. And I went probably, you know, the, the, we did not have access last year. We've had a change in leadership in the Big 12 Conference and officiating, and, and we, uh, we did not have access last year. So hopefully that will change back, transition. Well, welcomed us, and it was awesome. It, it, I thought it's so funny how naive you can be. Mm-hmm. I thought I knew. I had no idea. 
I learned so much in those clinics about rules, the axioms they use. I mean, it's not just about the rules. I mean, there's so many little axioms and guidelines they have to use within the rules that help them make judgments. Mm-hmm. No catch is a classic example. You know, what is a catch? What is not a catch? What are the guiding principles that help them decide is this a catch or is it not a catch? We've been talking about catch no catch probably since the beginning of time. And well, even they have when we rules and that even, they follow that, that help them guide, you know, does he make a football move? That's a biggie. You know, mm-hmm. running into the kicker versus roughing the kicker. Yep. How do they call that? They're, they have principles that they follow that you won't find in a rule book. They're not in a rule book. It's just that officials over the years have come up with these sort of guiding ideas that help them manage the game. And I learned so much. I became so uh, respectful. I gained so much respect for those guys because when you when you sit in those meetings with those guys and you break bread with them and you talk to them, you realize how badly they want to get it right and how much they care about being stewards of the game. It matters. You just, you have, I mean, they care so much. And that's why they're at that level. And it's an amazing group. I mean, I, and I found myself after that, I don't, I don't criticize officials. I've, I've basically stopped. It's like, now I know, know how stinking hard it is. And in basketball, too. You know, basketball is a different animal. Mm-hmm. Uh, it it's, goes so fast. Yep. And so many judgments with three guys. But it just, I, I learned so much. But I think as much as anything, my eyes were opened. Number one, as to how much these guys care and how good they are. And, and really, number two, how complex it is. So complex, both football and basketball. I didn't mean to go on a tan. I mean, I didn't mean to take you off the tangent of analyst, but let's go back to that for a second. Since you work with Mr. Holiday on TV, how did you and John Holcomb start working together? And how long? How long have? And how have you guys been able to keep it almost a two decades broadcast? you know, friendship going from on mic to off it. Oh, he's, yeah, we've, he started football in 04 when Gundy, or 05, pardon me, when Gundy took over as head coach, he started doing football. And then when Tom Dorado retired at the end of 07, after basketball, he came in and started doing basketball too. Oh, he's one of my best friends. Our kids are pretty much the same age. We are pretty much the same age. We think alike. We're, we're, we're so much on the same page on just about everything imaginable. That makes a difference. I mean, it makes an enormous difference. And we've always had a tremendous relationship. We always will. And it's been fantastic. I mean, if, if I need anything, I know I could always call him. I think he knows the same with me. And I'll tell you a thing about him with football that's important, particularly in the Big 12. His main job is a television sports anchor. He did mm-hmm. not play college football. He did play college basketball. Right. The thing is, in the Big 12, you need an analyst that can get out ideas and do so very quickly. 
they have to be incredibly <clears throat> efficient because the game moves so fast. You don't have huddles in the Big 12. <laughs> we had a few this year, but typically you don't. So it moves really fast. And so if he has something he needs to work in between plays, it has to be done really quickly. He's awesome at that because it's what he does every night on television. So it's perfect. Okay. okay Whereas a former player may not be able to communicate efficiently. He may have ideas, but if he can't get it out between plays, it's useless. Follow up to this. The year you did the broadcast open with the Leroy Van Dyke song, Auctioneer. Oh, yes. I still have that, and every time I am amazed. Because that's one of my favorite ones that I literally go back and listen to out of all of them. Who came up with that idea and... What was it? The offensive coordinator who was trying to, you know, go no huddle and see how quick you could actually survive in the broadcast with trying to call his offense, making your head spin. Yeah, it was that was at UTSA. That was my idea. We came up with the open idea <laughs> after we played UTSA, and and we've only gone that fast a few times since. But we were flying. I know because it was like every play. It was like he picks up nine, he picks up five, he picks up ten, he picks up twenty. And just boom, 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 and 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 <laughs> and, and, the, and the deep. <laughs> And the defense can hardly get lined up. Another time we went like that was 2011 at A&M. Didn't you do that, that at Kansas, didn't you do that before Kansas State too? Probably the fastest was UTSA and then the Texas A&M game in 2011. The year Oklahoma State won the conference. Yeah. And Oklahoma State was down 23 at half, 20 to three at halftime, and the coaches went in the locker room, and told the guys, "You know, we're fine. <laughs> Just quit making the dumb mistakes." We're going to run. We're going to screen pass them to death and go so fast in the second half they won't be able to get lined up. You know what's coming. We know what's coming. Let's just go do what we do. And we wore those guys out in the How second half. Easy. Just going <clears throat> screen pass eight yards, screen pass uh, thirteen yards, 13. screen pass seven yards. They couldn't even get lined up. Uh, so yeah, the challenge of a hurry up offense, especially here. Whew, we don't go quite that fast anymore. We sort of evolve, you know, everything, everything goes in offense because the defense reacts to something and in an offense you change or vice versa. But that was, uh, that, that game 2013 you're referencing was the fastest. Yeah, that, that, that was nuts. I'll never forget that. How quick did you have to be reflective on your, you know, broadcast cadence, writing down how many yards was on the play and then basically keep, I don't know if you well, you probably had a spotter at home, but how quick did you have to look at the field, write down, you know, whoever was doing the stats for you, had them get that information to you, you blurt it out and then listen to your spotter and then go to the next play when you're you when know, you're working stuff like that. You know, my spotter is not on headset. Uh, I've never wanted him on headset. He points and stat wise, thank goodness for stat broadcast. There was no time to do anything besides just go. It was just, I didn't even think about anything else. Just, just keep up with the play and just go. Everything else, if there's, if there's, if there's any housekeeping that needs to be done, we'll worry about that later. But right now, I just got to keep up. How'd you deal with the day you had no voice at Iowa State that year? What's that? The year you didn't have a voice at Iowa I'm State. Sorry? At Iowa State. When you played the Cyclones uh, that year, when you when you were yeah. doing the play-by-play and you were kind of sounded like you either had a cold or something like, as a broadcaster, that's probably like the that's probably like the worst thing you can probably deal with. But 
what were you dealing with during the week or was it or did it just come on all of a sudden yeah the worst was texas tech in 2005 i completely blew it out that day and i just kind of got through it and i've had you know i've found out last four or five years i had some allergy issues so i was fortunate Mm. enough to be able to get some treatment for that and it's got to be smart i mean that one of the years I had some issues, I think it was maybe 2016, I didn't teach my class. I said, guys, sorry, we're going to do this differently because the big part of my livelihood is Saturdays. And my doctor said, no lecturing. And that's the hardest thing. If you want the honest to goodness truth, the hardest thing on my voice is not doing games. It's lecturing class without a doubt. Uh, so. so- if I start getting a little weak voice-wise, I have to sort of change how I teach my class so that I stay strong for the weekend. So when did the teaching aspect come into play along with you being the, basically the lead broadcaster for the Pokes? How did you get the teaching gig or was there something that you were wanting to do or was this something that you had in mind and you just said, okay, I'll do it? I, 2007, they asked me if I would teach adjunct. They were starting a sports media program and they asked me to be involved in camp, in a camp and then teach one class, which I did. And I've done it since. I knew that one of the gentlemen had been brought in as faculty. I knew way back in the late eighties, early nineties, when I was working in Columbia, Missouri, during high school games, I was doing Columbia rock bridge and he was doing Jefferson city high school. So we ran into each other as he returned as he came to Oklahoma state to be on faculty and he knew of me and knew I was a play-by-play guy and said, Hey, what do you think about teaching? It's like, you sure? So, I mean, I, I suppose I've enjoyed it. It's they, the students have probably taught me as much as I've taught them because they're so into it. It It asks such good questions. And it forces you to be a better broadcaster because you can't sit there and tell them in class to do one thing. And then on Saturday, you go to another. You look like an idiot. If I were a student in your class, what are mandatory skills that you're teaching your students? And what do you grade them on on your grading curve? As a well, teacher? as much as anything I'm grading effort. I mean, preparation is huge. I mean, how to get things together, how to organize your information so you can reference it quickly. A lot is done on the writing part, believe it or not, even in a play-by-play oriented class, there's a lot that's done about writing. And that's probably where I grade as hard as anything is to teach them how to just continue to be good broadcast writers so that's a, that's a big, big part of it. And then play-by-play wise, it's location, it's description. I really pound hard the staging of the play, down, distance, yard line, gain on the play. Those things just get pounded into their head. Score and time, all those basic elements, mm-hmm. they get hammered on those things because without those things, they don't have much. I mean, that's those are things of the foundation. Everything else that happens beyond that takes care of itself with repetition and self-analysis or analysis from someone else. Someone else is helping you. Hopefully, you get pretty quickly to a point where you can coach yourself 
and uh, listen to your own work and evaluate it and uh, be able to criticize yourself, you know, to, to critique yourself, I should say, without either A, getting down on yourself and thinking you're not any good, or B, listening to yourself and think you're Ben Scully, which takes time because a lot of people either crush themselves because they don't like it or they think, oh my gosh, I'm so good. I never have to do any more work. And neither is true. How often do you go listen back and where are you listening for and how big when you started working with an analyst to now, well, you pretty much work with an analyst constantly. What was the biggest differences then and now when you started working with analysts compared to since you basically worked with analysts pretty much your whole broadcast career or as much as you've been able to work with analysts and how much you listening back and it's like, Oh, maybe I didn't set my analyst up, you know, when he made a point or I didn't right, follow right. up. Or, Being a better listener is what it comes down to is, is, and that can be tricky in a fast-paced football game, especially where there's talking between plays. You know, being able to listen to what he says and maintain a flow and conversation or follow up if needed, while at the same time being locked and loaded and ready for the next play, that's, that's tricky, especially in the Big 12 where teams go so fast. Again, not as fast in the Big 12 as we used to go two or three years ago. It's Our offenses have changed a little bit. Now we're using tight ends and fullbacks for crying out loud. Gone back to the dark ages. No, not really the dark ages. <laughs> Gone back to the stone age. A renaissance, and, if you will. Yeah, it's everything's in the circle. But, you know, being a good listener and listening to what they say and playing off of it and just being conversational. I think that's, I mean, it's, you know, how can you make a game exciting? How can you be professional? How can you capture everything that needs to be said, be sound grammatically, but also make it sound like somebody's listening to their buddy sitting on the couch with them? You can pull all those things off. You got a great chance. For you, what are your do's and don'ts when you're listening to other people's work? What are you listening for? What things? drive you nuts when you listen to other broadcasters or you know well, you better, that football, you better tell me the down and, you better tell me the down and distance in the yard line in football you better give me score and time that's the biggest thing is score and time on a regular basis you can't do it too much there's no such thing you're never going to drive people nuts by giving the score and time because people and part of it is people's attention spans change mm-hmm. it doesn't necessarily it isn't necessarily that people tune in and tune out literally. It's that they tune in and tune out in the sense that five minutes ago, the dog's puking in the kitchen. I'm worried about the puking dog. I'm not really paying attention to the radio. Once the dog puke is cleaned up, I can refocus on what's going on on the radio. So they've missed five minutes of action. You got to tell them again what the scoring time is and maybe tell them a couple of things that have happened in the last few minutes or recap the game. Those things are critical because attention spans are, especially now, holy cow, so many distractions. So that's, that's essential. You have to do that. And then down and distance, all those basics. You know, one thing I talk about with the students is sort of a progression of the play. 
every play is a series of actions. And I'm old school this way. Every okay. play is a series of actions. Can you capture all of them? There was a snap. Quarterback drops back. He throws. Is it caught? What did he do with it after the catch? There was a tackle. There was a result. What was the game? Every play is a series or sequence of actions. Capture them all. Basically the who, what, where, when, why, and how. Yeah. And we're back to the old journalistic, con- you know, back to old journalism again. Here we are. Same thing. Broadcast opens wise. How do you determine what music you're going to use for the particular opens? I look for a theme. I think with opens, you have to be careful. You can overthink them. Mm-hmm. And I think you have to come to terms that you're not going to hit it out of the park every single time. I mean, I, there was a time where I tried to hit a grand slam every time, and I probably had runs of years where I did that, but you're not going to. And you also have to be cognizant of your show and realize, hey, you better not take three minutes in an open because you just took two minutes away from the rest of the show. And the way we're, you know, with three-minute commercial breaks and a lot of them nowadays, mm-hmm. you know, you may have a two-hour pregame show and only have an hour of content. So you have to be cognizant of how it fits into the big picture of the show. But I'm always looking for themes. I'm looking for fun things. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we've done lots of those over the years. Some of them I'm really Yeah, the auctioneer, with. my personal favorite, along um, with the, 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 uh, the yeah. auctioneer, the, um, what was it? I've been everywhere when you were talking about the road winning streaks when you you went all the way across the Big 12 and other parts of the country where you won games and things like that. Probably the one that I like the most, well, we did one on Halloween with Thriller that was good, but the I, did, I don't remember getting that one, but I do remember, yeah. I do remember the year where it was a Big 12 championship football game, the rivalry, Bedlam, and you even brought in a little something about old man winner wanting to just hang around and watch the game, even though it probably had no bearing on the game. But I remember yes. the way you set the scene for that, and I'm like, whoa. He went deep into the bag of tricks. Either he went deep into the bag of tricks or that was something that that was going to be used in some way, shape, form, or fashion. You know, you're always kind of thinking about what will happen with it. Probably the one I may be most proud of is we did one in 2014. Mm-hmm. Tyreek Hill was here. And the ch- are, you used, t- oh, are you talking about the audio from Mutual of Omaha's Wild Kingdom? And it turned you, out great. Are you talking about the one where you had Pompeii with their first hit that they ever used and you dubbed and you put your call over that with. Um, Tyreek Hill running it back 95 yards, and he had the nickname no, of the this Cheetah. Was, this was something earlier that season where we had Marlon Perkins, and it was an episode on Mutual of Omaha's Wild Kingdom about cheetahs. And yeah. he talks in his own way, Isaiah, and cheetahs are one of the fastest land mammals on earth. And, and, and yeah, that's, a, that's what I'm to, talking about. Yeah, and he goes on, and then there's a chimpanzee that's scared, and the chimpanzee, and he says, now... WD, there's nothing to be worried about. Nothing bad's going to happen. <laughs> then we went into the audio of Tyreek Hill taking a kickoff back for a touchdown. It's like, and oh, you don't think anything bad's going to happen? Yes, it is. Yeah, that you, was fun. I was really fired you, up about that. 
and you use the song Pompeii by Bastille. How do I remember that? Because one of our favorite people, Keith Sampson from Learfield, sent it to me. Because I always like always like getting yeah. always like getting the broadcast opens not actually in real life game mode, but maybe like the day or two after, just to hear how the opens put together, because I've always wanted to put something like that together. But I've not had any way of doing something like that. But I've always enjoyed getting those. And I'm like, wow. That one was strong because yeah, Beth, the only thing we haven't done is have Garth Brooks, the Oklahoma State graduate, write a song for our pregame show. We haven't got that done yet. Oh, We've done hey. a lot of cool things. Now, okay. Speaking of graduates, how did you guys wrangle John Anderson into your pregame show on a weekly on a weekly basis? Well, along with the aforementioned Chris Trevino, he's one of my best friends on the planet. We went to Mizzou together. Right. And then he worked with John Holcomb, my analyst. Mm-hmm. in tv in tulsa channel six so we're both connected to him he married an oklahoma state graduate a former osu palm girl uh <laughs> who is t- a former Tamar wooten who's from tulsa so he wow. has all these connections to oklahoma state and that's is he's connected to john he's connected to me his wife's an oklahoma state grad he worked at tv in tulsa so people not only know him from espn they know him from when he worked at two different television stations in tulsa so there's a lot of connections and he's so funny. He's so knowledgeable and he's a great friend. The, the most talented broadcast writer I've ever run across in sports. And I'm not sure it's even close. <laughs> he, he is an unbelievable writer. So funny, but he's so funny because he writes so well. How big for you is it from when you started how big is connections? I know a lot of people are always talking about, you know, business relationships, connecting, connecting with people. What are you telling your class on how to make sure that when they really want to get into this business, besides what you teach them, that they're finding the right people to keep them on the right path, that if they really want to be in this business that they that they have to have in their circle. Well, you you're taking your brand out to sell. That's what I tell them. I mean, you're you cre- you're creating a brand which is you that you're going to take out and present to people. What what do you want that to look like? It better be really good. Because if not, if your image, how you present yourself, how you interact with others, how you behave professionally mm-hmm. and then certainly the quality of work you do. If those things aren't good, then you're, you're not going to survive. You're not going anywhere. Nope. You're not surviving. Well, and this, this business is political. It's not like you're hiring a salesperson. Let's say you're hiring a salesperson. It's medical sales. And let's say the benchmark for typical medical sales is $2 million a year. And I have no idea what that is. I just made that number up. That's $2 million a year. And you have a candidate that sold $3.2 million worth of stuff. And the other candidates, 2.2 million, everything else is pretty much equal. You're probably almost for sure going to hire the person that's hired that's sold 3.2 million. Probably. It's a simple deal. I mean, it's, you, you can analyze the resume, you can analyze the productivity and make a decision as long as they're not a jerk. Right. Sure. Whereas in broadcasting, there is no such thing. 
one person could listen to you and say, oh my gosh, I think this person's an ex-Bob Costas. And the next person could listen to you and say, he's terrible. He's terrible. So how do you, how in the world do you figure out a plan to work your way up the ladder if that's the way it is? There's only one way. You've got to build relationships with people who have influence, who can tell the people making the decisions, look, it's not only that this guy's good <laughs> on the air, he's a good team player, he's going to interact with fans the right way, he's about the right things, he's your guy. Because it's not, <clears throat> it's not objective, it's subjective, which means you need people influencing people. Because that's why I'm here. You, you have to. If not, there's so many... There are so many broadcasters out there that are really, really, really good. Tons better than I'll ever be, but they didn't make it because they either didn't put the time in or probably more accurately, just really could never get comfortable with the networking part of it. And it's unfortunate because they were plenty good enough, but they just never were comfortable or skilled at doing the networking which is so critically important and it's it's and that's too bad because there's lots of them out there and you know you cannot in this business to get to a high level there's lots and lots and lots of good people mm -hmm. and you have to figure out where you have an edge and most of the time almost in every case that's it's relationships how can you tell from your students, those that have put the work and put the time in, and those that are close but yet still need more work? Timing. A lot of it's timing, understanding when to say certain things and what to say. Yeah, I can always tell the ones who grew up listening to games on the radio because they have feel. It's the savvy. Understanding when to say things, understanding how to say things. And in today's world where you have a lot of young people that don't grow up listening to games on the radio or may not grow up even watching televised play-by-play -play right. with a critical learning ear, mm -hmm. you can tell they, that the good ones stand out like a, they stand out like crazy. They, they stand out more now, Luther, than they did 10 years ago. Sure. Most definitely. You, you can... I can get my class of 20 and I can tell you within two weeks, the four or five that have a chance. And, you know, and the thing is you don't have the range. It used to be 15 years ago. You would have some in the class that honestly probably need to consider doing something else. Right. Now I think, you know, young people have enough opportunity to do some things that by the time they get to a class such as mine, that is a pretty much a senior level class, they've done enough that they won't embarrass themselves on the air by any means. Mm -hmm. you know, they can be solid, but the ones that have a chance to be good and achieve, oh, they separate. They really separate now because they have the savvy, the feel of timing and how to say things and how to inflect, how to be storytellers without being over the top. They get it because they've been watching it and listening to it and paying attention not to what's being said mm -hmm. or what's going on on the screen but also very much taking in what the announcer is doing when they're doing it and why they're doing it they they get it
and those are the ones you're like, okay, this one's got a chance to, this one's got a chance to be really good. What do you still feel like you're working on as your points right now? You know, your years as a play-by-play voice. Get rid what of you- stupid crutches. Um, <laughs> don't, you know, putting things in context is always so important. Um, trying to think how to say this. Well, let, let me piggyback real quick when you say falling into stupid crutches. How do you tell with you that you are falling into a pattern and how do you get yourself mentally back to where you're supposed to be, even though you know you've used pistols firing touchdown Oklahoma State 15 times because they've scored on yeah, every that's possession. I mean, that's kind of a little, that's kind of a little gig, a little thing. Well, we'll it, come back to that, but like when you say, you know, catching yourself in one of those patterns, how do you mentally, you know, get yourself out of the trap of, okay, I'm about to get to something crazy here, and I know that I've used this, and I can't keep using it. Right. You, that's just all listening back. You catch all that stuff by listening back. When you, when you listen back to your work, then you catch that stuff. Mm-hmm. And then it's pretty easy to eliminate it. So, yeah, I would. Does it basically come down to listening and repetition? And, and doing your self-analysis? Part does, it basically, does it basically come back to listening and repetition and absolutely things that you know that your standards of excellence that you have set for yourself so you don't fall into that trap? Right. And, and that's where sometimes, too, listening to other broadcasters for it can be incredibly helpful. You know, you just hear how other guys do things. And how they, how they say things, and how they change up the way they say things. I mean, you can always learn from other people, especially when you're young, even when you're old. But when you're young, in particular, you can really learn. <clears throat> now, your catchphrase of touchdown Oklahoma State or pistols firing, because I know you mm-hmm. touchdown Oklahoma State quite often. Well, is that something that? you decided on or was that something that was basically in spite of what you were thinking or was that one of those that had to be had to be thought about for a little bit before you decided to use it on the air oh i thought about it absolutely but i but i didn't really seek a ton of approval on it i thought about it for sure and then it was one of those things let's throw it out there and see if it sticks and the only reason it stuck is because we started winning games on the field at a rate that we had not won before. The fact is, I could have said anything. <laughs> when you beat Oklahoma back-to-back years and knock them out of the national championship game in back-to-back years, that's a good feeling. Oklahoma State, you could say anything, and it would have stuck. So that whole thing was enhanced. Mm-hmm and basically given all of its legs by the success on the field and probably specifically the success on the field in consecutive years against Oklahoma as an underdog. 
with less miles at Oklahoma State at that time. So it's funny how those things work. And speaking of that, I remember the Open, we go back to Opens again, because I, I, I love the broadcast Opens. I remember when you said in that Open, and I quote, the day that college football changed. That day when you and John Holcomb did the, the Bedlam game. 2011. Yeah. When it changed, when you said the day that college, the day that college football world changed. And Oklahoma fans hate that open because they knew exactly what I was implying. It's like your little brother has caught up. In fact, one of them shot a message at me at Twitter, kind of throwing that in my face is like, we didn't even used to be a threat. Now, obviously, you feel threatened or you wouldn't even send this to me. So I kind of got, I don't usually do that, but I got a little dread with him. Um, so there was a little, there was a little smart aleck in that. I'm not going to lie, <laughs> but it had changed. Because no one took Oklahoma State seriously for the longest time. Outside of a few pockets at various points in our history, nobody took it seriously. And you can darn well be sure they didn't take it seriously in Norman, ever. You know, if we were the little brother, we would always be the little brother. We would Red-headed stepchild. Et cetera. And while mm-hmm. we haven't had the success against them recently that we hoped we would have, is it different? Of course it is. They know if they don't play well, we'll beat them. Back in the old days, they could play bad and still beat us. Not anymore. And and now we're a threat, you know, thanks to Boone Pickens and all the facilities that were built. I mean, it wasn't – it was a collaborative thing. It wasn't just what happened on the field. It's what happened with Mr. Pickens. Because he wanted to beat Oklahoma worse than anybody. And it all sort of all came together, and it happened quickly over about a 10-year span. And so things had changed. We had facilities to compete. Mm-hmm. We had teams to compete. We had mm-hmm. coaches to compete. We had had that in pockets of our history previously, but frankly, the school had been so financially poor that it 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 could never sustain itself. It didn't have it didn't have the money to compete, nor the history to compete. But they were handicapped by money. There's no doubt. But that uh, so yeah, there's a lot. There was a lot behind that. I just didn't say that. There was a lot behind that. Well, I gotta know because. I know there's been a lot of broadcasters who have had to take over for legends and when Bill Teagan's passed away tragically and then they had to find other guys to, you know, fill in until then they hired you as the full-time voice. What is it like trying to take over without trying to be – Bill Teagans, who tragically passed away, and the other guys that have filled in that have been legends in their own right. How do you feel having to try to stick with being yourself, knowing the circumstances with the guy that had died in the tragic plane crash and other things like that? even though you didn't come into the, you know, booth until 2004. But how tough is that on a new new guy trying to be in that position? 
the fans here were awesome to me. They were patient and they just sort of let things happen. And that allowed me to go about it with this thought in mind, do your job, do it really, really well, be completely sound fundamentally, mm-hmm. completely sound and just let things happen as they happen. If it works out, it works out. If it doesn't, it doesn't. Cause I know you had told the story at least once, I think in. Well, to some divorce. extent, be confident in your ability to be sound. Sure. Yeah. Be confident. I mean, you, you, you gotta go into that thing. You can't be cocky. You can't really show that you're confident, but you gotta be, you gotta be really, yes. Like, Hey, you know what? I know I'm sound. I know I can do this. Joe Castiglione helped me tremendously. Athletic director at Oklahoma was enormously <clears throat> getting the job. And, you know, he made me feel good. He said, I have no doubt you can do this. That's why I recommended you. So was I, he the one that said, because I think you told the story in The Voice Behind the Voice, or maybe it was Save the Damn Score, one of the two podcasts besides Play by Play cast. I don't know if you've been on that one yet. But it was somewhere in one of those podcasts where – the guy you're speaking of basically said, because I think you had called him and asked if you should take the job. Yeah. And, he, and said, and he said to you in no uncertain terms, if you don't take it, you're not going to get another opportunity like this. Yeah. He said, you can wait 10 years for the next big 12 job to open up and then hope the stars line up the way they have with this one. And then he said what I just said before. If I didn't think you could do this, I wouldn't have pushed so hard for you to get it. Said, I have no doubt whatsoever you can do this. And you're going to be fine. And it meant a lot. And it kind of like, okay, he's right. And so we carried enough to work out. And, you know, his belief in me meant a lot. He, his willingness to go to bat for me, his confidence in me. Dave Hart Sr. was right there hand in hand with him former commissioner of the Southern Conference and athletic director at Missouri, who one of his, you know, and he really was Joe Castiglione's mentor. So Dave Hart Sr. also kind of had a special penchant for broadcasters and from his time at Missouri. So with both those guys really showing their confidence in me, I think that helped me. You know, I, I, I thought that I could pull this off and, 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 and do okay with it. And their belief in me really played a role in that because I, it, may, it, it helped me, you know, convince myself that, okay, just go in there, do what you do. You know how to do this. Just go do it. And, but have the right attitude, be respectful and go about things the right way, both on and off the air. Let's shift. So that's what I did. Pretty simple. Was Dave Hart the one that helped you get a broadcast going with one of the lower level tournaments when you were at Radford at that yes, point? Yes, he, he was. He well, I was doing the Big South TV play by play, right? And Asheville, North Carolina, hosted the Big South tournament the last two years. I was at Radford and doing the Big South, and he was helping them organize their community effort since he had retired from the Southern Conference. And he and I sort of hit it. I mean, he was a Missouri guy. I did not know him before then. I certainly knew who he was. He's an icon. Mm-hmm. And so we really hit it off. And he asked me to come to Asheville to MC a couple of banquets. And, oh, he was the best. I mean, remember, people don't realize this. 
The reason the Final Four is in domes is because of Dave Hart Sr. Really? After, as I understand it, after the Magic Johnson-Larry Bird game in 1979, he was on the NCAA Basketball Committee, and they were discussing plans for the future, and he said, you know, we could play – we could have the Final Four in these domes. We'd sell fifty or 60,000 tickets. We realize that, don't, don't we? And it's like, that's crazy. Who's going to sit in those seats up? They're not, people aren't going to buy those tickets. He's like, oh, yes, they will. <laughs> this thing is an event. They don't really care if they can see or not. They just want to they be there. They just want to be there. <laughs> they had the, in 1982, if I remember correctly, they had the first Dome Final Four in the Superdome in New Orleans, sold 60,000 tickets to Dave Hart Sr. Wow. So he was the brains Pretty behind the NCAA really Final Four in the Dome. And a lot of people don't like it, but he knew what it meant financially. And he knew that he was a marketing genius. He did the dollars and cents of it. Well, and he saw the event part of it. You know, he he had a, you know, he convinced Norm Stewart that playing Illinois and St. Louis was something they needed to do. And Norm was reluctant. And he's like, look, this is going to turn into a Christmas event. It's going to be huge. Well, they're still doing it. Exactly. For 40 years. The Bush bragging rights game. Every, Absolutely. About, I was Dave Hart Sr. Right, of either two days or four days or five days before Christmas. However it falls on the calendar. You know, when, when Mizzou yep. and Illinois can work it out, uh, it's still a huge deal. Even if Missouri and Illinois aren't very good, it's still a big deal. That, exactly. That's him. What do you think the college landscape is going to be? Because, one of my, I mean, we were talking about this before one of – my guests and I, we were talking about, you know, all the, what used to be with a lot of regional games where you used to have those rivalry games, like you still have Texas OU, but you don't have the Texas Texas A&M anymore. You don't, you have Oklahoma, Oklahoma State, but you don't have Oklahoma, Nebraska and things like that. Where do you see college football rivalries going and where do you see college sports as a whole? Where do you think the landscape will be in the next five to 10 years? If you're lucky enough to still be around to call the games. The power five will separate. I think that's inevitable. I don't like it, but I think it's going to happen. I think the pandemic will probably accelerate that. It was headed down that path anyway. Mm, they've been talking about it the last, what, five, six years, yeah. maybe longer? Yeah, and it's I, – I, and maybe depending on what the financial implications are to athletic departments, not only in the short term but in the next five years, what do those financial pictures look like? Mm. Maybe we get back to more common sense. And Nebraska's I hope so. back in the Big 12, and Missouri's back in the Big 12. And, you know, it's funny, when all this happened, the conversation I had with John Anderson, mm-hmm. when all this was going on back 10 years ago, right? he made the comment, he said, you know, it wouldn't surprise me if we do this for about 10 to 15 years, and then people wake up and say, this really wasn't such a good idea. And everybody <laughs> goes back where they were because it makes more sense. You know, and, and Missouri is a classic example of that. The, and, and, and I, if their fans are listening, they're not going to like this, but I've said it enough that they know how I feel. Oh, it's please not feel worked free. out well for them in the SEC at uh, all. No. The, the, only, the only thing that's worked out for them is, is they're more closer to, I don't know, 
they're more they're more closer to a few plays in the SEC, but not really. Because well, not really. I mean, and they they lost a rivalry with Kansas. Or bringing that back, I have to admit, I kind of hate that Kansas did that. I'd have said no. I know they did for <laughs> the longest time. You know, because they need to be back in the league. Exactly. So we we joked we joked the last time we played in Missouri in basketball was like whatever year that was, 2012. And it's like, they'll have so, about 10,000 in here tonight to watch us play, 11,000. wonder how many people they'll have in here next year when Mississippi State or Ole Miss rolls into town on a Wednesday night. Yeah, really? Not going to have 11,000. I mean, I mean what no offense to Ole Miss and Mississippi State, but there's a history with Oklahoma State. Mr. Iba was from Missouri. Eddie Sutton was a legend that they felt like they'd kind of touched and he was coaching and Travis Ford played at Missouri for a year. There's just mm-hmm. so much history there. And then all of a sudden you just throw it in the trash. And then they all will say, well, it's all about money. Oh, the, it, it, hey, it, when it you go like to the to SEC, me. here's the issue. All right. Okay. So when you go to the SEC, all you've done is go from the $20 blackjack table to the $50 blackjack table. Mm-hmm. You may have more money, but you're going to have to spend all that extra money to keep up with everybody else. It's irrelevant. And I think now it's finally hit them. It's like, whoa, maybe we don't fit. They don't fit in the SEC. And that's nothing against the SEC. It's just Missouri is, they just don't fit. So if they want to come back, I'll drive to Columbia and pick them up and bring them in a minute. Same thing with Rutgers in the Big Ten. They don't fit. Yeah, it's weird. I mean, I looked and I'm like, wait a minute. Rutgers for years that I remember following college sports was a big East school. That's where they were. I think we may shift back, hopefully. I mean, there may be some shifting back. Uh, We'll see. Do you you think West Virginia has been a good fit in your conference? Because the Big 12 is now feels like to me more like the Big 10. Could you only have 10 teams in your conference? West Virginia has been great. I mean, the geographical piece is challenging. Yeah. But it's like Tony Caridi, their play-by-play voice, told me in an interview (laughs) a few years ago. He, He made the comment. The, the one thing the West Virginia fans love is that in the Big 12, everybody takes college sports as seriously as they do. When they were in the Big East, that wasn't the case because so many of the teams were in pro markets. Right. Now we're in a conference where everybody is as enthused about college sports as we are and are so passionate about it. He said in, in the old Big East, there, there wasn't any of that. It, it was totally different. He said, our fans love that. He said, they, they miss the rivalries for sure. Mm-hmm. The geographics, they don't like. But as far as a fit in terms of college sports, they really enjoy it. I've, I've enjoyed having them in. I mean, yeah, travel. I mean, I don't really care about travel. Travel's travel. I've enjoyed them tremendously. I've, I've enjoyed having them in the conference more than I even thought I would. It's been great. You've got you know, football program that's had success. I mean, Bob Huggins is one of the great coaches in the history of the game. Mm-hmm. Uh, their fans are passionate. I think it's been awesome. I, I've enjoyed Again, is it geographically the best fit? No, but everything else, it's an awesome fit. And it's been, I think it's been great. But let's say we go back to common sense. Let's say the teams we talk about now come back to the Big 12. What does Virginia fit in all that? Well, depends on what options they have, I guess. I mean, don't think for a minute if the ACC didn't come calling and we had a realignment that they would have to probably 
you know, strongly consider jumping in the same league with Virginia Tech and Virginia and Maryland, and, uh, excuse me, Virginia and Virginia Tech. Sure. And, you know, back with Syracuse again. So they would have to do what they felt was in their best interest for the big picture. But my thought would be if there was a realignment and they wanted to stay, shoot, keep, I would never think, I'd never want them out. I, <laughs> there'd be no reason to, to ask them to leave. It, they bring a lot to the table. And I, uh, speaking for myself, again, I, I think it's been awesome having them in the Big 12. It's been, it's been fantastic. What's it like dealing with all the broadcasters in the conference as a broadcasting fraternity? With all we the guys probably are as close in the Big 12, if not the closest of any group in the country. We have a pre-tournament dinner uh, at the Big 12 tournament. We all get together first and have a meeting where we <clears> talk <throat> about issues we're dealing with day-to-day, whether it's equipment, uh, any of a number of things that we might be dealing with, exchange ideas, make recommendations to the conference, and the Big 12 in almost every case has implemented the things we've recommended. We're very close with text exchange and stuff flying on that thing constantly. (laughs) We are very fortunate. Everybody in the Big 12 really enjoys each other's company. They have a lot of respect for one another. We don't mind sharing ideas. We we enjoy sharing ideas. I, it's it's and, we, and most of us are about the same age. It's interesting. Not all of us, but even the younger guys, you know, like Jeff Paxton at Texas Tech and Brian mm-hmm. Haney at Kansas. They put up with us old goats, but it's <laughs> it's really it's really fun and it's it's pretty unique. I think in terms of conferences, everybody really enjoys each other's company. And they now, run the best team with one another. It, it's, I, I, it's, it's a great fraternity of guys. It's some darn good broadcasters, really good broadcasters. I know I've probably gone way past, you know, the time that you probably even allotted. I don't even think you gave me a timeline out when you had to be out. Yeah, I've got, I've got another Zoom call in a few minutes, so but well, that's let, okay. Well, let's close it out with this. And I want to thank you for the time because yeah. this has been a blast. And I do look forward to hearing your thoughts on work and things like on, you know, things that I can improve. And if I can improve in any way on this, just let me know how I can, because I want to improve on these vehicles so I can be better. But the good night Vienna thing. (laughs) (laughs) I I knew you were probably waiting for that. I decided to, I decided to close out with it because, you know, I wanted something at least light and a little bit humorous we can close out on because I don't know if you told it on one of the pods that I am subscribed to but I think you told the story on how you were able to get the good night Vienna but for those that don't because I remember hearing it and it was fascinating when I heard it the first time that I had to bring it up again (laughs) that's I'm not afraid to try things and I don't and I really just don't care I just like, yeah, whatever. I mean, what's the worst thing that can happen? And that's just, I mean, that's part of who I am. If I don't do that, then I'm not being authentic. And I think right. that's critically important. You've got to be who you are. There's an old guy that ran the gas station. And a good night Vienna is a breakaway touchdown. I don't use it very often. Some guy t- tweeted me one time and said, you know, 
I, I wish you'd say good night Vienna more. And I said, well, it's kind of like your wedding china. You only pull it out for special occasions. <laughs> it's got to fit. Don't just throw it out there all the time. It's got you don't throw special. it. You, you don't throw it just to throw it. It's kind of, then it would kind of be like a boomerang. No, you got to you got to pull it out at the right time. But there was a guy that ran the gas station, one of the gas stations in my hometown in Cahokia, Missouri. <laughs> name his name was Bubba Cannon, and he has passed away sadly. Mm. And they'd hang out up there at the gas station and drink soda. And everybody in my hometown was so into sports, and so the discussions were lively and quite educated, honestly. Whether it was Major League Baseball or college sports or the NFL, everybody it was pretty wild. Everybody's pretty smart. And right. whenever something was over, he'd look up and he'd say, and you know what? They scored three in the seventh, and it was good night, Vienna, baby. <laughs> it was over. <laughs> uh, nice. Stand that this is a guy that to illustrate the to illustrate this guy's personality so that you have a clear picture of the type of guy we're talking about here. Oh, please. The Steelers and Cowboys played in the Super Bowl in 1979. Mm -hmm. Guy came into the station to pay for his gas and said to Bubba, he says, hey, Steelers and Cowboys are playing in the Super Bowl. Who are you going to root for? You hate both teams. Bubba looked up in the cash register and looked him square in the eye and said, injuries. <laughs> injuries, huh? I'm rooting for injuries. So that tells you the kind of guy Bubba was. Does it almost feel like broadcasting is kind of like how, as I always say, the tour department of broadcasting, but do you kind of relate painting a picture like a comedian trying to make sure that the jokes that he or she comes up with is going to draw the folks into what they're trying to make a point of? Do you feel well, like the... It, it, and I feel think like... there's a fine line. There's a fine line between being credible and not taking it over the top. But it also have to remember it is a show. Sure. They call it a show for a reason. It is a show, but it can't be so over the top that it's out of context. Right. And you have to kind of know when to be serious, when not to be serious, and you can't you, you can't call try to call attention to yourself that it takes away from the action that's happening on the playing field or on the court. That can never happen. But there's ways that you can interject little things to give it a little bit of a show flair and make it fun without doing that because it can't be about you. Right. But it does. that doesn't mean you can't have fun. So there's a fine line that you learn to walk there. And I think as a broadcaster, that's why listening to other people as a young announcer is so important because you can learn that by observation and gain that feel and savvy because there, there is a fine line you walk there and it all, and that varies from audience to audience, what you can get away with. Mm -hmm. So you have to understand who's listening, but, or watching, but you can have fun and, but you can't have fun and, and just turn the thing into a uh, complete uh, nonsensical, you know, where it's all about you and it's not, you're not capturing the events and putting things in context. There's a, there's a way you can find that balance. And if you can do that, then you can kind of give people a little bit of everything. You can give them the most important thing, which is the game, but you can make it fun for them to listen to or, or watch as well. That, that's, that's what I'm trying to do. I, I want to, first of all, get them to the game and tell them what's going on and be accurate, put things in context. But I don't want to lose sight that uh, sports are supposed to be fun. 
Mm-hmm. And people, you know, they watch the news because they need to know what's going on to make decisions in their lives. They listen to sports because they want to. They want to be entertained. It's something they look forward to. And it's Very an escape from everyday are life. Watching or listening to sports because they have to. And it's an and it's an escape from everyday Absolutely. life. Absolutely, of course it is. Two hours of broadcast gold in the can. Thank you for that. Yeah. And hopefully next time we get to do one of these, hopefully we're actually talking about games and something. And <laughs> hopefully we can do this again. Absolutely. And uh, and I'll tell you what I've got. I listened to some of your stuff. I'll I'll write some email notes down. I've got some ideas. I'll just shoot them in an email to you. Look forward to it. Because I because I look forward to it. Sounds good. I enjoyed it, Luther. Thanks for getting in touch with me. No, no, thank you for allowing me to um you know, thank you for allowing me to do this because you know I listen to your work and I'm like, okay. Because I I've listened to you, I've I've listened to a whole bunch of guys. And I'm thinking, okay. Since, but he's not doing anything right now. Or yeah, it's a great to, time to do it because most of us, you know, I've got a few projects here and there, but it's not like any normal baseball season, that's for sure. So what do you? So you know, you have a Zoom call. So what are you working on the rest of the day? And I've if you, got if you, a couple of Zoom still, calls I got to do, and then uh, if you I've still have that some, open from twenty fourteen from with Thriller, because I don't remember if I have that one or not. If you can, I'll look and see. Um, I might have it somewhere. I probably have it on disc somewhere. I just need to find it. Cause I, cause I, like I said, I love as we talked about. Oh, what was that the Andrew WK uh, party hard when you did that open? I forgot to mention that one for homecoming. Yeah, I loved that one and the Philip Phillips one when you also did homecoming for when you use Philip. Yes, Phillips. I I still have that one. Yeah, my daughter's love. My daughter's helping me with those two. Really. Yeah, they help, they help me come up with a lot of the help me my youngest especially with songs. Me, uh, uh, me and my gang. There's a lyric that says, "Way on down to Southern Alabama with our guitars." That's where guys are headed. We played Troy. That's, that was we used that lyric and cor- incorporated all that into it. It was it was fun. That was my oh, daughter's man. idea. Nice. Hopefully, hopefully there were more of those. Hopefully, I can get some of your opens when you start the college football season. Yeah, I really did get. I I I recorded most of them, but I you know. I, I usually just get a lot of opens just for my own amusement because I, I I like listening to the opens and I like getting ideas, but I can never forget how to use them with the, with the teams that I cover because I don't have a lot of time. No, of course, yeah, especially with with especially with the high school because we really don't get much. Right. And, I, right, and my goal is to get to, and my goal is to get to the college level and try to implement a lot of these ideas. But at this point, I can't seem to figure out how I That's can okay. just pay attention and observe others. And, and when you need, when, when it's time for you to load up your gun and shoot it, you'll be fine. You're doing the right, you're, you're, you're going about the process the right way. You're, you're learning and observing what you should be doing. And with me being blind, that kind of makes it doubly hard. And plus, you know, sure. we talked about when you talked about the spotter and stuff, I need to have them on a headset, but I also want to figure out, you know, how, of course, yeah, you have to, because for, I, I want to figure out, cause I know a lot of bright folks have heard, you know, him in my ear hole because I have to have him, but I got to figure out, you know, maybe some tips on when my audio guy comes back over the audio person that helps me out with it on how I'm the only one that hears him and it doesn't bleed, you know, bleed right. You on my there's call. ways to work around. There's ways to work around that. And we can discuss that at some point. Cause I, I was thinking about that too, as I was listening. Yeah. Cause, cause that, cause that was the biggest complaint that everybody had in the crowd. And, you know, I try to keep everything centered because I have to keep everything centered because of the sound quality. 
but, unf- but unfortunately, when you're when you have a spider in your ear and you're you know you your spider is basically you know giving you the information and the nuts and bolts that you need to do the game call, you're gonna get crowd noise. You're gonna get the dribbling of the basketball. You're gonna get the band you know doing their thing, and you're gonna get cheerleaders and fans down below from where we're sitting high atop in the press box. Sure. And I and I'm just trying to figure out a better way where I can still make the call where my spotter, you know, because I finally have somebody that's actually in the like, like me that's obsessed with this stuff. That right. Wants to right. get better. Right. And hey, I better jump off here. I need to jump on this other call. Thank you. I appreciate you, Luther. Thanks, right. man. Thank you.